You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Hello, manufactured listeners. Today we are going to talk about efficiency. Often we have this impression that efficiency is all about how to push workers go faster and faster. This is true, but incomplete. Today in this episode, we are going to talk about four ideas: efficiency, productivity, volume, and stable demand. Refreshing those ideas will disclose a hidden connection between efficiency and sustainability. Um, we will provide two frames to understand the whole picture. Frame one. Let's take a close look at how efficiency has been defined, set, and followed. Efficiency here refers to the time each step takes within the production process. When factories want to take less time on each step and approach it in an accountable way, that's the moment they see their operators as assets. From who the management can learn. Some very valuable and first-handed experiences. That's also the moment factories start to engineer the working environment to make it more human-oriented and find a way to reduce the waste of raw materials and reduce the usage of energy. So efficiency can be a tool to improve sustainability. It's totally up to how we approach it. The second frame we provide is. The different interests between brands and suppliers makes them head to opposite directions, which creates tension between efficiency and productivity. Furthermore, set factory in a quandary to keep finance healthy or maintain jobs for old employees. Brands care profitable buying prices and available suppliers. They don't mind or even welcome a reality that the suppliers on the same quality level are replaceable. Where、well, factories try their best to be advanced in technology to make themselves less replaceable. Eventually, the technical competition among factories just narrows down to a keyword: efficiency. Faster means lower cost, more output, and bigger capacity. Less replaceable. But I think it's important before we jump into this conversation、uh, to explain a little bit about. The relationship between efficiency and productivity. I think in the garment industry, we assume that more efficiency leads to productivity, and we assume that because we assume that if we can get faster at each step of the production process, that this will also lead to more output. But this is not always true. And I think it's important to explain that efficiency does not always lead to more productivity, and efficiency. Is not always a useful tool for productivity. So productivity is is the amount of finished goods a factory produces in a certain period of time, divided by the number of people that were working on those products.、Uh, so it's measured as output per labor hour. For example, if in one hour I produce one hundred products, and I had ten people working on that, then it would be one hundred products per ten labor hours. So when I was working as a factory manager, we discussed this this all the time because we were dealing with unstable demand and with low order volumes. So, for example, if you have demand for only one shirt and you break it into twenty steps and assign twenty people to make it, 
even though each person is doing each step in the most efficient and optimal and fastest way, your output per labor hour would not be very good. Each individual step was fast, but when the person doing that one small step is uh, quick, the rest of the 19 people are just sitting there waiting for the for the garment to be passed down in order to be able to do their step. So in this extreme example, being more efficient does not equal more productivity. And a better financial choice in this extreme situation would have been to have only one person making the whole shirt, even though each step would not have been optimized, and having the other 19 people go home. Because in this case, paying one person for an hour to make this shirt would be cheaper than paying 19 to make it, even though, yes, that one person is going to be going at the, at the level of the individual step is going to be going slower. And I give this extreme example because I think it's impo- it, it really highlights the way that the output rate of a factory must always be set to match market demand. Otherwise, um, the benefits that you get from optimizing efficiency at each step of the process will be lost pretty quickly because the moment you have people idle, there's becomes a tipping point when you have um, when you have a production line. The moment you have people sitting and waiting idle, then that is the moment where those gains or those benefits from 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 being more efficient at these at these at these high at these individual steps are are lost financially. And this puts a factory in a in a very difficult position because. Um, uh, when we're dealing with unstable demand, then we have to kind of find this this balance between how many people do we hire and uh, relative to how efficient do we want to be at each step of the production process. If we hire more people, we can specialize. We can we can basically break the product down into more steps potentially and do those each step in the best way or we can have fewer people and do each step in a little bit slower way but this sort of helps us to cope with inconsistent volume and unstable demand and um Efficiency really, therefore, is a key word for production management. But I think within sustainability circles, it's it, the understanding of what efficiency means is incomplete. And as Jesse mentioned, it's focused only on uh, speed. And, and speed is then interpreted as how to better push workers or set targets to work uh, or set targets to make workers go faster. But there's actually a connection. Efficiency only makes sense as a concept for production management when you have a relatively uh, stable demand and when you have a certain amount of volume. And when volume shrinks from 10,000 pieces to five or 10 pieces, it doesn't make sense to talk about efficiency anymore because it's, it's no longer going to be useful as a tool for productivity. In this episode today, we are inviting our former colleague Chatu. Chatu has set up garment factories all over the world and uh, also then um, has experience managing different types of factories within the garment industry. So he brings uh, not only abundant technical details uh, and information that really bring these four concepts to life, efficiency, efficiency, 
productivity, volume, and stable demand, but also paints us a full picture of, of how these ideas are connected to one another and how this connection helps us to understand how efficiency could or could not uh, be a tool of, of sustainability. So welcome, Chatu, to Manufactured. Hi, Chatu. Hi, Jesse. I knew you um, from Sri Lanka. Yeah, I'm from I, Sri Lanka. I have seen a few very beautiful landscape videos you sent me about Sri Lanka, but I haven't heard about your stories. So please tell us about your stories. About Sri Lanka. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up and how did you uh, step into textile factory at the first place? Okay, uh, I born near Colombo. Uh, it's a, a business capital in Sri Lanka. And uh, after my uh, advanced level, while waiting for the university, I thought that uh, I should do some uh, course, courses. So that time in 20 years before, uh, 25 years before, it was very famous in Sri Lanka, the textile and garment industry. And then my aunt asked me to follow one course. And since I saw interest for the subjects and I didn't go to the university i skipped that one and i continued and then later while i joined with the company uh, garment factory my first factory then i did the i then i did the university studies okay what caught you will you say it's so interesting to caught you so you skip uh, university what exactly caught you at the uh, moment i was interested for the industrial engineering the theories and I'm normally target-oriented person since my childhood. So this is exactly kind of uh, targets, uh, economics, those kind of things are there. Because of that, I thought, okay, I'll do uh, university studies later. I'll start my career first. <laughs> okay, it's easier. Maybe it's easier for our listeners to understand what is exactly about uh, industry engineer. Yeah, industrial engineering is something that uh, uh, is applied for any kind of industry, uh, whereas the production is manufacturing is there. So since this is uh, garment manufacturing related, and uh, it's all about how to uh, maximize the productivity by reducing the cost, uh, unnecessary hand movements, uh, giving some extra uh, extra support for the uh, doers so this is huge subject uh, as as a medical student uh, i supposed to go through the medicine actually but i thought no this is what i really want because uh, that is goes to the target target oriented field so i thought okay this is my field not the medicine <laughs> so it sounds like you were attracted by the optimizing Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, reduce the cost, optimizing the existing resources. So if we need to increase output or productivity, it doesn't mean we need to increase the resources. But with the available resources, well, how to get the maximum? That's what we learn. Mm. It's like progressing, progressively optimizing the current process. Exactly. I, I can understand now, yeah. And the first government factory you joined, is it, uh, was it in Sri Lanka? Yeah, or? the first one uh, is, is in Sri Lanka. It's a small government factory. I was worked there around six, seven months. Then I saw one uh, advertisement in the newspaper. Uh, the, the advertisement from the one of the biggest company in Sri Lanka, they have around uh, 40 government factories. 
more than 40,000 workforce. So I thought this is a dream job to apply. So I applied and uh, first two interviews I passed. And while I'm coming home after the second interview, my mom got the call, said, you are selected. And that is, and that is for the Maldives actually. First time I went out from Sri Lanka to work there as an industrial engineering executive. Yeah. And the Maldives, I work around uh, four years, I remember. And uh, that time uh, there was a tsunami happened. So we move all the factory back to Sri Lanka. So once in once it's moved to Sri Lanka, uh, that time I already felt the taste of the dollar because I went outside the Sri Lanka. So then I again started uh, applying for the overseas jobs. Do you mean that you could earn more money abroad than you could in Sri Lanka? Generally, the foreigners get paid more than the local. So it's applied for, I believe, almost everyone. So in the Sri Lanka... Well, uh, except maybe for like migrant workers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. So in the Sri Lanka, uh, really they pay uh, extra money for outside the country. It doesn't mean the salary in Sri Lanka is less. It's enough. It's good salary for the good person. But when we go outside, we can earn more. Uh, before get married, I should finish my house. I had in my mind and I applied again. I got the job in Bangladesh. So every time when I went outside the country, there is something uh, happened to take me a decision to change the country. When I went to Bangladesh, then that uh, that is time for me to get married. Then I got married and then uh, I thought that, okay, maybe Bangladesh is not the place to stay with the family. The reason to go out from Vietnam is my kids' education. Uh, I found that the school they were studying in Vietnam, they had only the grade 7 and that school not registered any place in the USA to uh, kids to the universities. So then I was thinking that, okay, so now it's time to change. So here I am here uh, today in fact, with the tactics. So at the beginning, it's, uh, it's driven by personal interest. You quit medical, the major of medical and get into in textile industry. Correct. And then every time when there is a new choice, it's because of the benefits for the families. Yeah. Sometimes it's family, sometimes my own benefit to get uh, next steps in the career path. I see. And yeah. uh, uh, the places I change my uh, career path is not because of the salary. If I think about the salary, I'm even not come even Vietnam. So it's not the salary, but I think something much further. It's uh, the what next? The money is not the everything. So I, I'm not satisfied. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to have a challenge. Worth, I think, giving some context to listeners who might not know. I mean... The garment industry in Sri Lanka has been around a lot longer than the garment industry in Cambodia, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's We true. were starting, I think, 25, 30 years before in the industry in Sri Lanka. Initially, when we start the industry, uh, Filipino are the experts because it was so uh, good industry in Philippines and uh, many Filipinos in Sri Lanka. So... Once uh, we started the garment industry in Sri Lanka, then Sri Lanka became so uh, popular 
in terms of the efficiency because our literacy level is 95% or something in sri lanka so uh, even machine operators speak english they understand the concept so the, later the sri lankan became expert and they are the one uh, go to other countries to implement for example if you go to dhaka bangladesh all the major factories the top portion are from sri lanka so the then sri lanka became a pioneers for the industry um you mentioned chatu that um sri lanka was really the pioneer of the fashion industry or the garment industry rather um why did the company that you work for suddenly decide to open factories in other parts of the world um Uh, is it once, just to do once, with wages or was there not exactly, enough labor yeah. enough in not enough labor anymore in Sri Lanka uh two things happened at the same time one is uh, uh once the people are uh, expert they uh, demand too much salary and uh, the labor is getting expensive uh then of course the garment industry it's about uh, raw material and the labor two major uh, parts of the Uh, cost cost so the cost is increasing in sri lanka for the labor anyway we don't have materials we all import from the other countries once it's the labor industry labor cost is high the small uh, small cost garments are going away but still sri lanka is famous for the high end fashion garments because uh, that can earn a lot plus uh the the small product like bras or uh, lingeries they have a good market in sri lanka market in the sense for the productions mm. uh, because the all uh, sophisticated machines are there in sri lanka for these products uh, so the small less than 2 uh, minutes garments to 40 50 60 minutes garments is produced but in between is tough because cannot match the price Yeah and I think that's an important distinction to make right I mean you said that uh the salaries were too high but it's not that salaries were too high relative to what people needed to live it's that salaries were too high relative to what the market could pay and that that really has to do with what brands and what what those exactly. what those customers were willing to pay Exactly Uh the industry always looking for a cheaper places for the labor cost yeah the industry is searching for the cheaper in terms of the labor cost plus the how much cheaper they can get the raw materials so uh, if it is import so how fast or how cheap they can get the raw materials so these are the two things uh, generally or mostly think about the garment factories and in terms of labor cost i think i often heard the factory management always talk about efficiency Then I think next question would be, how do you define or what do you mean exactly by saying efficiency in terms of uh, mass production? Uh, of course, it's uh, this is a labor-driven industry, not the machine-driven industry. So uh, everything is uh, the skill base. So uh, if we can produce hundred pieces rather than fifty pieces. of course uh, both the parties can win why both the parties because the company will get more pieces to sell and uh, most of the factories they have a incentive system or piece rate or bonus or team bonus system so more they produce more they get so uh, efficiency is more important to run a business so when you say both parties you mean who exactly uh, the employees and employer 
the workers and the companies Correct. or the factories. Yes, if we if stitch more, they can uh, export more garments, so that the company get uh, more money. And they, if they stitch more, uh, the employees get more money based on the incentive system they have. Would you say that efficiency is how long it takes to do one part of a production process on one product? Uh, the defend, depend on the operation, we define the uh, standard minute value. And within that garment, there are operation combined. So the, the operators, they go, they do one by one operation. So each operation, the industrial engineering department has allocated uh, time to complete. We call the standard minute value, SMV. So uh, if the one operation, it, if it is take one minute to complete, if the operator complete that uh, operation within one minute, that is 100% efficiency. So uh, if they uh, do within two minutes, that is 50% efficiency. So likewise, it will be calculated. Anyway, the standard time, standard minute value is fixed. It, do- it doesn't matter. Sorry, uh, when you say the standard time is fixed, but where did you get this fixed standard time? That's that's what it's based on the product uh, material, the quality level we need, uh, what kind of machine we are going to use, and uh, uh, stitch length, uh, stitch type, SPI means stitches per inch. Those all consider to calculate the standard minute value per operation. So it's really something very technical, very objective. Exactly. That's and the reason I, uh, I omit the medicine. And a very quantified let's say exactly you can actually paint a picture about efficiency and the capacity for instance let's say there is a factory have 400 people and if efficiency is good they could 400 people could produce let's say um let's say 500 pieces of t-shirts and if when they improved efficiency with the same amount of people, 400 people produce now 800 pieces of T-shirt. So in this way, this company or this factory is much more competitive in the market. They have space to gain more orders, which means to make more margins, more profits. And then they can decide later how to use that profit. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. That's why efficiency is so important because it's directly linked to labor cost, which linked to margin profits. It also linked to capacity of a factory, how much factory can produce in a given time with a given number of people. Let's say you are producing a new, this line, this team of people used to produce jacket. And today they needed to produce uh, uh, pants. Maybe it's not that often, but let's say they switch to produce pants. It's a new product for them. So how can you know where they are now when they started to produce pants? Oh yeah. Uh, if it is a jacket and the pants, uh, the critical operations in the jacket normally that skill level is much higher. Uh, when we okay, I'll put another way. Uh, if the if the production flow production line is running jacket, uh, the critical operation we know what are the critical operation and we know what, which operator doing that critical operation. Those are the operators goes to the pant critical operation. In the jacket, the critical operation are placard, hood attached, uh, pocket, front pocket attached, those kind of things. So when it goes to the uh, pant, waistband attached, inseam, side seam, and the J stitch, those are the critical operation. So we take that particular operator to these operations. So, so then we, bal- we know that 
of course they never did this one before but we know there's the skill level that person has and the skill the way that person performed the, with the jacket that uh, even if it is come a very new product we know that skill can immediately match with the new operation i see so basically in your guys eyes a jacket is never a jacket a jacket is actually a combination of many many specific processes and a pants is never a pants but also a combination of many many specific processes and when you compare those processes the some of the processes can be put in under the same catalog exactly uh, for me uh, jacket operation 50% equal to the pant operation but totally different product it's like a fast food menu <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no more no longer pants or jackets. It's just a combination of processes yeah. and that help to set up a standard or benchmark of efficiency when the whole team switch to a new product because a new product is not exactly new. It's just a new combination of something they had a figure combination before. of the new panels. And I have another question re- regarding to this uh, target of efficiency let's say you set up a very good uh, efficiency target which reflect uh, the technical level that people could reach but somehow let's say after two weeks or three weeks or something you find out the same part of the team or the whole team left behind this standard we can identify a few reasons uh, one maybe a operator itself uh, operator not skilled enough to perform this job or machine frequently a breakdown or maybe the quality level is so high the operator cannot achieve the quality level or maybe uh, the fabric itself is not uh, giving a good uh, combination with the machine and there is a 1% of chance that uh, around 1% of chance that the industrial engineering uh, time the smv is not right because uh, only 1% of the chance the target I, is wrong there is a chance still there's a chance for the error uh sometimes the the time we have given cannot achieve because there are hidden uh hidden operations are there which industrial engineer not see practically because he just see the garment and he dis- define the time but when it comes to the production flow there are some hidden operations uh, we have to do before the original operation which the industrial engineer may not uh, notice before for so, instance maybe you needed to make a inside out of the clothes then you do stitch but if they didn't see this inside out action they do stitch first then it takes time to do inside out yeah, again that's a good example yeah and sometime uh, when we give the target the operator achieve more than what we gave why because uh, operator, the target is too simple too easy <laughs> not exactly but the operator find easy way than the industrial engineering do Okay so, so you mean so the operators yeah normally when we learn in the school they always teachers tell us uh, don't underestimate the machine operators they are the one who do the job they know much better than us don't so, underestimate them exactly yeah. okay. that's what there is almost first lesson lesson they teach us to respect the, the doers and sometimes uh, even myself uh, 20 years before I went to the experience operator and uh, operators and asked with the sample how to do this uh, operation. I learned from them also many I I would say 10% of the theoretical knowledge I got from the doers. They teach me uh, they 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 are able to teach me how to perform that uh, operation. They don't have any clue how about SMV. They don't have any clue about the pressure foot type, so needle gauge, needle size, but they know how to do that one. that gives me an idea 
to def- when we define the time that give us a very good idea to see because sometimes we not see but they can see much better than us do they have a smooth channel to uh, feedback these uh, experiences or? no because i i i believe that nobody goes to the operator to learn they think that they know but they don't think that operator are the one who do and they much may have more much good ideas to perform that operation so it sounds also like the management responsibility to always remind the IE team that you need to go closer to the operators and uh, normally in the sample room operators they have much experience once the sample comes the sample room operator is the one who uh, tells that okay this we can do in this way but uh, that same experience need for the IE person to understand the practically this is how we do and uh, normally uh, even myself uh, i can stitch uh, that is the lesson i need to pass so myself yes i can stitch okay but I, i cannot give the targets but i can stitch i think it's worth to drop a note here for our listeners about sample room sample room operators and ie it's very common a factory gets a sample product from a brand or a client which they have to show they are capable of making It's an opportunity for factories to get an order by showing how fast they can make the sample, how well the sample is made, and how good the price could be. So the place of making samples is called sample room. Sample room operators is a team of highly skilled sewers who can make garments from cutting to sewing. instead of production operators who usually just do one step of the whole production process. When we mention IE in this uh, interview, we mean industry engineers. In a typical garment factory, we can say IE is the person who sets efficiency targets and find all sorts of technical solutions to improve efficiency. When we get the sample from the buyer, the industrial engineering person must know that what kind of uh, sewing machine they have used. And sometimes uh, when we see the garment, we see that uh, this, there are a lot of things to simplify. they may do two three times stitches which we can do one time and we can use a folder to make it uh, much easy so there are many things to simplify so it doesn't mean that we exactly copy what we get but uh, we can always propose to the customer okay this is how we can produce this one with the less price if i follow your garment your st- construction it will be this cost but if i propose this same appearance it we can reduce the cost So this is the space uh, of the added value from a factory, from a supplier. Exactly. I think it, this is so interesting, Chatu. I think something that a lot of consumers often don't think about or don't realize is that the companies, the brands from whom they buy their clothes, actually have no idea how to make the clothes, right? And I think it's one of the questions that popped into my mind as you were talking uh, was like how much... in your experience how much do brands know about let's say smv or how long making a particular garment should take um and uh like how does that relate to cuz one of the positions when i was managing a garment factory that i was often put in was like well you're too expensive you're more expensive than your competition you're doing it too slow you know things like that and often i had no way of of actually my feeling was that these companies or these brands that I was dealing with were actually bluffing. They didn't know. They didn't really have any understanding of how the product was made. They were just kind of trying to to see Squeeze. yeah, we are and to see like how far they could push us, right? Mm, yeah. 
exactly uh, normally behind the screen there are a lot of things happen for the garments for them we give a sample you give me the product but uh, there are a lot of uh, steps it, to make it happen so uh, the initial planning stage for the construction is the much important place because that that decide the garment cost we can make for one particular product for 10 minutes or if we have a real machine uh, real uh, industrial engineering mindset we can make for 5 minutes even so it's a 100% reduction of the time so it's all depend on how much uh, knowledge we have to make the product simple simple way simplified the operations based on yeah. the sample the brands or the clients offered yeah so But, that also means if the brand or the clients um, allow a certain spaces for the factories to give some advices it can benefit both sides yes yeah, some are open to have a, a suggestion some bias but not all not all yeah can someone need exactly the same thing a controversial question maybe um one of the things that i've experienced on the factory side is that sometimes factories and i've we've done this ourselves sometimes um sometimes we'll find a cheaper way to do something and we won't share it because there's no trust that those cost savings cost savings will be shared with us so for example there's a fear that okay i fi- i figured out a cheaper way to do something but if i tell my customer the brand they'll just ask for 100% of that cost saving to be passed on to them so i'm not going to share that knowledge with them and i'm i'm going to keep it for myself now in the garment factories we do tactfully this one let's say we once we get the sample and the way they stitch the sample is takes standard time for 10 minutes but we can do practically 5 uh, minutes with the all with all the engineering thing but we give 8 minutes so still they are happy but actually we do 5 minutes so we play in between yeah and cuz the also i think the other dynamic to point out to listeners that's going on here is that during the sampling stage the order is not committed you don't know yet if you're going to get that order so there's also like this tension of like if you give away your information or your knowledge about how to produce this product efficiently then maybe they take that to another factory right yeah definitely we when we have a sample we don't give the way we do we just give the how much it cost we never disclose how we do right and which is interesting from a sustainability perspective because fundamentally right like the factory does not want to disclose how it's making the product because there's a lot of fear that then you know that knowledge will be taken from them and put somewhere else but at the same time if we want to talk about doing you know making pro- making fashion more sustainably we have to we have to talk about how the products are actually made right exactly yeah but it's a chicken and egg what we how how extend we should do we have to manage that one i think it's worth um just exploring this question a little bit deeper because although we don't have any easy answers we do have a couple of ideas that are maybe interesting to put on the table um i think i just want to before we do that i want to reiterate why this is such an important question because 
it's it's often overlooked or 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 it's so obvious that we forget to to think about it sometimes but if we if we want to talk about sustainability we have to talk about how we make the products how the products are made and any initiative that's focused on circularity or focused on improving raw materials the sustainability of raw materials um can't be done if brands and factories if if uh brands and factories can't talk openly about how these products are made so so many of the sustainability initiatives that we have out there really depend on this question for me i think like one of the things that i'd really like to point out in terms of what brands could do to open lines of communication is one of the things i hear sometimes is that, well, suppliers should come forward. Suppliers are so secretive. Suppliers are hiding their information and it's it's on them to basically be more open. And I, I think that this is unfair um, because, you know, it, it sort of ignores the asymmetrical power dynamics that are happening here. And I think that brands, precisely because they are the ones in a position of power, need to take steps uh, measures to basically uh, reassure their suppliers that um, they are going to be protected, that the information, that if they share information about how their products are made, that it will not be used against them. And there are a lot of ways that that could be done. You know, it could be attached to to better purchasing practices. It could be attached to longer term contracts. Um, and it really requires, I think, on the brand side, rethinking or redefining what is perceived or understood internally as a risk and what is not. Yeah, I, I like the idea that uh, the brands could uh, um, reassure or or secure the supplier's interest um, that or profits. That makes me remember what we discussed or what we discovered in the previous interview with Pete that he mentioned a sole supplier contract he signed with uh, one of the brands. And I think that was really a brilliant idea for brands to protect the interest from the supplier's side. And I, okay, somehow I also understand the brands might feel a bit insecure because it feels uh, like old eggs in one basket. However, um, today brands already outsource the whole production to suppliers. That reduced a lot of risks. Now it's factories managing the raw materials stock, managing shipment, managing production, dealing with the up and down demands. Um, if brands truly felt very insecure to sign a sole contract with a supplier, actually they don't have to make this contract cover old, old products. It could be just uh, one type of product with one specific suppliers. Mm. Anyway, what I want to point out is actually a sole supplier contract could be really beneficial for both sides mm. and depends on how we approach it or how we use it. And how we think about risk, right? Like what's a bigger risk? Is it having one factory producing one all of a single type of product or is it you know having our planet swimming in waste and 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 fashion waste and uh our ocean full of plastics from the materials that the fashion industry is using and the list could go on and on right how about the risk that uh, have no idea brands have no idea how this specific product is made right, right yeah exactly that seems like a risk too 
as we are hearing now in this conversation with Chatu, knowing technically how to sew a garment is totally different than knowing how to mass produce it. I think those knowledges and skills can be quite valuable and very interesting for brands. So mm. if the communication flow can be opened in a by beneficial way, that would be really cool. Yeah. And on the supplier side, because although I, I open this by saying that I don't think suppliers should bear the responsibility uh, for opening these lines of com uh, communication because of the power dynamics that underpin these relationships, I do think that there are a couple of things that maybe they could do if they wanted to. And one of them is probably going to sound equally crazy and controversial as what we just suggested brands should do. But that is um, that is that I think like suppliers uh, could find ways of working together and of cooperating that supports rather than undermines their business. And I think we should explain why this doesn't happen. I mean, there's a lot of fear. There's a, I mean, factories are, are basically replaceable. And so there's a lot of fear that the moment that you work together with your competition or that you, you know, share your your secrets of how you make your products that then uh this will be taken from you and uh like will eventually result in you losing your business. And that fear is very very real and shouldn't be shouldn't shouldn't be minimized in any in any way. But at the same time, the bigger picture of what's going on here is that like factories and suppliers are being pitted against one another. And so although in the short term by brands, right? And so although in the short term, this sort of like isolationist approach is beneficial and helps you to keep the order in the long term like I, at least this is my personal view in the long term, like the, you know, as a collective group of suppliers we're losing out and this system is is not is hurting us collectively not not helping us and that you know working together like to sort of find sustainability solutions um could uh if done in the right way and done in a way that also offers some protection um would uh could be really really powerful in terms of yeah. then being, you have power in numbers. If you like come together to work on a specific sustainability issue and then find a solution and then come forward and put that forward collectively, there's a lot of power in numbers. And that's one way to redistribute, I think, the, 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 well, or to shape how those negotiations then can go and whether like you have to, to sort of minimize that risk of then that, that, innovation being taken and, and going somewhere else right <laughs> yeah i think there are still actually there are still lots of spaces of this uh, collective thing mm. uh, there are lots of work and lots of things can do if suppliers could uh, grouped or mm. could organize it together without if there is a way a scheme or something to make them to see each other not just as competitors but more like allies Still, today, it's, uh, this is an open question. We don't have any answers. Yeah. But, uh, but it's good to think about all the possibilities from suppliers' side and from brands' side and doing some brainstorming. And probably we will get some more clear pictures one day. Yeah, and maybe some of to some of our listeners, the ideas we've just thrown out will sound totally crazy, but I'm okay with that. I think... Like that's part of the throwing out these crazy ideas as part of kind of radically reimagining what sustainability could look like, you know? 
And some and of the ideas will work and some of them won't. And that's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. And uh, if any listeners have some crazy ideas, uh, please do share with us. You can find us on the website. <laughs> okay, so Tattoo, back to production. Let's say one production team has 50 people. And with uh, efficiency improved, now finish the same type of product, you may not need 50 people. You may just need 40 people, let's say. Then what are you going to do with the extra 10 people? Uh, we don't think that way. Uh, if we plan for 50 people, 100 pieces per hour, if it come 150, it's better. We do 150 and finish the product much sooner than what we expected and start the next product. Or the other way, if we don't have uh, next product is comes, next product is not ready yet. Okay, we slow down to the 40 people, but give the same target, same efficiency, and use that 10 people for some other value-added work. Okay, so you're basically shifting people, shift people between different functions. Correct. But you still prefer to keep them. Yeah, I prefer to keep the same thing, same number of people. It's really interesting or really important, I think, to underline for listeners, like if you have improvements in efficiency, that doesn't, just as Chatu said, that doesn't mean that suddenly those additional people are not needed. In fact, what it does is actually increase your capacity to be able to take on more orders. And um, and that's one way I think that uh, and and therefore for the for the factory to be able to to earn more money, right? Which is which ultimately is what what the factory needs to be able to keep people employed and potentially and hopefully hire even more people. Yeah, definitely. Operators are actually a set, right? It says they are valuable sets, especially if they are very skilled and knowledgeable. In the garment factory, yeah, operators are the assets because this is a labor-driven industry. Jesse, what you said made me think like, I think there's a really interesting parallel because earlier in this conversation, when we talked about how, you know, this relationship between brands and factories and how brands really rely on factories to know how to act, how to make garments and how to make products. And then that sort of and, and the tension between sort of how we open those communication flows and why that why those communication flows between the brand and the factory might be shut down. And then one layer down, Chatu then also says, you know, we really, the industrial engineers and the factory management really relies on the operators to know how to make these products, right? And so you see like the same, and then you followed up with a question, well, like, how do you make sure that you open those communication flows, right? And so you yeah. see like the same model sort of replicated um at different levels and and i i i'd never really considered it that way and i i think that's that's interesting yeah because uh, if we need to uh if you need to have bring the factory to the next level all these uh, people need to work together as a one team it doesn't mean that the management is the one or the operators or the one to run the factory it's a it's a team game so more we closer each other or more we understand each other, we can uh, go for extra mile. And I actually think the, see the whole process is more like a value sinking down process. The operators, they are dealing with products every day. They have lots of experiences and knowledges. Maybe they don't always. Uh, yeah. So as a management, it, it's very important to open the communication flow to have that value rising up to the management to make a wise decision. 
Yeah, yeah once we listen and then ultimately to the, to the brand, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Once we listen to the operators and once we're so close with them, we can have much more nice ideas from them. We never ever think that they can have that kind of good ideas. But even as, as I said, we should never ever underestimate them. So they have brilliant ideas. They have brilliant ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And Chachu, you said something about constant orders. And I want to pick up on that because I, I'd like to hear from you a little bit about what conditions or what kind of things do you need to have in place in terms of your relationship with your customers, with brands, in order for these tools that we've explored throughout this conversation to be used, um, to be to be deployed in a way that uh, that that is respectful and um, uh, of of the people working within the supply chain instead of uh, a weapon against them. You know, like we talk about a lot of times especially people in sustainability circles, we'll talk about efficiency like it's a dirty word, right? Like efficiency is a word that will um, result in the abuses of people's of factory workers' rights, right? And one of the themes or one of the things that we've talked about today is how, in fact, actually, there doesn't have to be this conflict. There doesn't have to be this tension between efficiency and uh, workers' rights. But the reality, I think, in the fashion industry uh, more generally is that sometimes these same tools which we've explored today can result in outcomes that, from a sustainability or human rights perspective, we think maybe are not so great. And so you mentioned the importance of constant demand. And so I'm interested to hear from you, like, what kind of conditions or what kind of environment do we need to create as an industry in order to be able to use words like efficiency and all of the tools that come with that in a way that actually supports efforts to making our industry more sustainable rather than the opposite? D does that make yeah. sense or not? Yeah. The, uh, efficiency is really not a dirty word. Efficiency is the because this is a business. Uh, mm. We have to have a, a earn the at least the break even point to reach the break even point in the factory uh, to earn at least equal for the expenses. We should have some kind of efficiencies. Uh, when we give a, a time to produce one product and we decide. We means industrial engineering department, industrial engineering person decide how many people need to perform this particular product and how fast we can get how many pieces, which efficiency level. But based on that, it's reached for certain uh, efficiency levels to get to run this uh, particular product profitably. So uh, if we run that product with that particular efficiency of course uh, we can have a sustainable orders uh, we can have a continuous orders from the customers because we can reach their targets but what, what do you mean they, about by continuous orders i guess that's what i'm trying to push here is yeah uh, it doesn't mean that we are asked we are demand it's maybe uh, we need the continuous orders from the customer side to fill the factory to mm. get the efficiencies in the same way rather than have a keep on changeovers right. and uh, again the efficiency is not that something that we need to reach 100 uh, with uh, a high uh, let's say 30 40 minutes of garments 
of the standard minute value garments. If we run these kind of uh, garments in the factory with the many style changes, uh, 60% above or 60 to 65% is a very good number of the efficiency of the factory. I mean, if the average efficiency of the factory, not the operator, not the team, but the factory efficiency in the production flow, if it is between 60 to 65 is a very good number. So to reach the 60, 65 efficiency is not that difficult. And uh, when we think that uh, we are forcing the workforce to reach the efficiency, it doesn't mean that we are forcing for 100%, 100% efficiency. We are, we are talking about uh, between 60 to 70% of efficiency as a, a general. Then we can average around 65 efficiency, including the uh, style changes. So how we can maintain that number once one style finish we we have to make sure the other next supporting order. staff next order is ready to feed the line from the one after the other not wait until the one style completely finish clean the line have a, a one day break then feed the other uh, style from the first machine but it's it, it should go when the the previous previous style the last operation comes the uh, new orders first operation should feed next next behind from that machine so if we go like that way we can easily maintain 60 to 70% efficiency so uh, it's not that uh, pushing the targets or something for the work worker point of view uh, to reach the 60 or 70% efficiency even average worker can reach so it's not all about the pushing the people to the edge I think it's important still to really drive home the point that Chatu is making, which is that this only works if there's stable demand. What that means is constant orders coming in from brands. And the reality is that often factories don't know. I mean, orders are confirmed at the last minute. The lead times are very short. And, and you know, one month that like even now with these with the coronavirus and these masks, for example, the demand has shot through the roof and suddenly there's, you know, so much demand for this product and maybe in six months, the demand for that product will be very different. And managing that fluctuating demand is really, really hard for a factory and um, really impacts efficiency, right? Yeah, this is where the industry in engineering comes to the uh, picture. Once everyone is asking delivery for yesterday itself and how we uh, cater that demand, that's why the industrial engineering need to really uh, put their hands to think how to engineer the workplace. Let me go from the basic then. Uh, we have a, a chairs in the production floor, but nobody thinks that uh, the chair's height should be adjustable. It should be adjustable based on the individual operator's height. From that point itself, we are engineering the workplace. Chair height, the distance from the chair to the machine, and the visibility of the needle. If we apply those kind of things to the or every operation, the reaching efficiency even for the uh, new operator is an uh, easy thing. But what we need is to guide, teach, coach the operator how to perform the job with the very easiest way. If we have a right person uh, uh, in the production floor, of course the, the workers will reach their target much higher than what we expected and much faster than what we expected, then the, the that pressure will goes down. So even the orders flooded, for example, the mass orders flood 
immediately everybody asked the delivery for yesterday still we can really really manage the flow if we really go in details so it doesn't mean because of the orders flooded we need to push the operator it's totally wrong we need to do a systematic way to engineer the workplace uh, balance the capacity balance the skill one of the things i think is so interesting which again i had never thought about until this conversation is like a lot of times in people who work in sustainability will really promote like you know there's a trend now to go to smaller order sizes uh to to produce only what we need customizable stuff for which we know there's demand because then it will result in less waste on the consumer side in terms of you know that will only produce what we know consumers will buy and it's interesting because okay that's one way to think about sustainability but it's actually in tension or in conflict a little bit with what some of the things that you've just described chatu which is that like actually you know if we if we really want to from the factory management perspective it's a lot easier to not e- it's a lot easier to 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 balance um or to to cope with orders if they are stable and if they are large and to set up a, a a production floor and a workspace that is well designed for that particular product and that this and that that actually moving to all of these small lots of customizable products would would make that whole process so much more difficult right and i never thought actually about you know it's it's often i think taken for granted that small production lots and um customizable customizable products that exactly match to market demand is more sustainable and and while that might be true on the one hand on the other hand from a different angle it poses a very different set of challenges right yeah exactly it uh, in the fairy tales books we have uh, long orders uh, continuous orders but the reality it's not comes like that way always <laughs> we have a style changes always we have a different type of product different type of fabric different type of quality requirement but uh, how much how fast we can adapt to these changes those factories will remain in the industry if you could wish for one thing to make the fashion industry more sustainable what would it be uh <laughs> i i should whether it's a continuous orders or the small quantity but the continuous orders is my wish not the not the blank in between even the 100000 pieces or 1000 pieces still okay but the other order should come before this order finish so you don't, you don't wish for big quantities or big fish you wish for continuous continuity yeah, yeah. because if we have a proper system and procedures in place as long as the factory is busy that's enough which means stable orders stable orders but not the, maybe not in the same buyers or same customers but stable orders and reliable and, forecast and stable Correct. orders ultimately are what you need to be able to guarantee your workers a steady income pay, right every, yeah exactly we want to make sure that uh, uh, the factory is running so I don't want I I really hate to see the lines getting dry. So I want to feed the line once when the I I it's it's a it's my target or what I like is if today the style finish I need the same day the next style output even one piece still doesn't matter but I need to see the next style output even one piece in the same day. So we need to make that to make that one there are a lot of ground works to do. So I like to see that that kind of condition in the factory. 
So if I can translate sustainability into production flow language, that would mean first continuous orders. It doesn't matter the order quantity exactly, but uh, continuous constant orders. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, efficiency to maintain efficiency. And then that guarantee the payment to the workers, to the operators. And then if they work, we get salary also. <laughs> the optimizing of old processes, right? It's always about optimizing, yeah. optimizing the raw material usage, optimizing machines, optimizing the motion of people, of the workers. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good uh, way of saying sustainability on production floor. It was such an interesting conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Chatu. I think we really enjoy the discovery. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.